Welcome to the Friends of NPACE podcast. My name is Josh Plotkin. I am the Chief Operating Officer for NPACE, and today I'm joined by NPACE Executive Director and Nurse Practitioner Terry Schmidt, as well as Dr. Jessica Peck. And Dr. Jessica Peck is a certified pediatric nurse practitioner, clinical nurse leader, and nurse educator. She's currently a clinical professor at the Harrington School of Nursing at Baylor University in Texas. Dr. Peck is a highly awarded international nursing leader with expertise in advocacy against human trafficking. And she is the author for Parents, a podcaster, and daily radio host. Dr. Peck also has joined NPACE at several of our in-person conferences over the past few years and has several online programs available with NPACE where you can find more on her programs at learn.npace.org. We're so excited to have Terry and Dr. Peck with us today. We're gonna have a conversation surrounding pediatric healthcare in the US and there's no better person to discuss this with than Dr. Peck. And with all of that being said, I think we've talked about some questions that we can ask and think about um, that, that will help guide our conversation. I think the first one that we want to ask is, when it comes to your practice, what is the hardest thing you're seeing right now that pediatric families are dealing with, Dr. Peck? Well, good morning, Josh and Terry. It's so I'm so delighted to join you here and to have this really important conversation because I do believe, as cheesy as it sounds, that the children are our future. So it's really important for us to talk about this. And when you ask me what's the hardest thing that I'm seeing in practice, it's honestly very difficult to choose because there are a lot of hard things that are facing families today. But by far and away, I know from my own personal practice and I know from surveying uh, pediatric nurse practitioners and advanced practice, uh, advanced practice nurses from across the country, that the number one thing that we're seeing is concern over mental health. And often I'm asked in the media, you know, is it as bad as people are saying it is? And I'm a nurse, so it's important for me to give a trustworthy answer. And I say, no, it's worse. It's infinitely worse. And I think we're just seeing a perfect storm of things. We're seeing Gen Z, which is a digitally connected generation, but they have really not been connected relationally. So we're seeing things like order anxiety, which is a term they use for their fear of even going up to the counter in a coffee shop and giving their order in person. And then we had COVID come in, which really amplified that digital connection and it really continued to cut them off from real people in the world. And so they're feeling anxious. They're living at the speed of a smartphone. And in our last survey at the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, we saw that 90% of respondents, this was over a thousand respondents said by far and away, we are seeing the mental health crisis, not only among children, but among their parents in practice. And that is very difficult because it's hard to refer. It, even if you do want to refer, can they afford it? Is there someone who can see them? There are all these barriers to care. So we are really trying as pediatric focused advanced practice nurses to learn how to deliver more mental health and primary care. I have so I, many I, thoughts. I Josh. know. I think we're both we're both sitting here like I have ten different questions that right? I think I could ask in terms of what's next. Well, so let's stick with this because I think I mean let there's a problem. We better amplify it. What a what a great platform to do that. Knowing what I know from practice, it is 
what's the biggest obstacle in getting parents to be able to deal with this or pediatric nurse practitioners? Is it is it generational? Can the parents just not relate? Is it because they have their own mental health issues? What What's the biggest place for intervention and why we're seeing? Well, I think one of the biggest barriers is getting parents to accept that their child might have a mental health condition. There's so much stigma surrounding yeah. that. So if parents have their child who has an earache, if they're just a little fussy, they have a runny nose and they don't sleep well, parents have no problem on picking up the phone and saying, hey, I want to get in today and I just want you to check it and make sure. And if I check it and I say, you know what, it looks great, they feel better. And if I say it's an ear infection, they still feel better because they feel like, oh, we caught this early, great. Mental health, parents will sit on for a long time and parents will always ask, what are the signs that I look for? And I tell them, you know the signs. You know that feeling in your gut as a parent that something is just off. But we don't want a mental health diagnosis because, for one, there's no rapid test. Like a strep test, we know for sure that it's strep. For anxiety, there's no test that shows that. And then there's no pink stuff, right? There's no amoxicillin. There's no quick fix. And then we worry, what will people think about our kids? What will people think about our parenting? And then if there is a problem here, like can I afford help? Or are they just going to force medication down my throat and tell me that's what I have to do? I'm afraid of medication. There's just a lot of fear and stigma. And so I think we have a big opportunity as pediatric providers to convey that we treat your brain just the same way we treat your ears and to normalize health-seeking behaviors for mental health. That's a, that's a really great point. Josh, do you want to add one of your questions before I go tangential with this mental health? <laughs> no, I think I think she it, it's been hit on the head in terms of it's you, you have to change the stigma around mental health and being able to accept that there might be something going on with your child is, is probably a very difficult thing to do and to you know, as, as Dr. Peck said, if you can visibly see, you know, that they're sick or have a cold or that earache, you're you're going to go pick up the phone and get them into the clinic. But um, when it comes to mental health and some of the things that you're seeing, maybe it's not on display or maybe it's something that you see and you just you don't know how to deal with it. But I think if providers are in a position where it's a it's, it's an environment where they feel comfortable being able to do that. And I think that that has started to change and is it continues to change, um, you know, as it as it as Dr. Peck said, it's becoming more and more prevalent with pediatric patients. Well, and there's a lack of not only knowledge but resources, right, Jessica? So what are, what are I mean, adult mental health resources are scarce. What's it like on a pediatric landscape? It is, it's probably even worse because we have a decrease in pediatric providers. There are more adult providers generally per capita than pediatric providers. And then you've got the added complexity of, of an adult can kind of manage their schedule and know when to go in for an appointment. But now we've got parents and managing other siblings and trying to do those things. It's really very difficult. And when you look at the shortage specifically of pediatric mental health care providers, for example, I live in Texas. It's a big state with more. Oh, two, 254 counties, and every county is designated as a shortage as far as mental health provision for uh, for pediatric care. So we are going to 
you have to transition to find ways to provide that. And we're seeing that across the country. There is a, a network that gives pediatric providers resources. For example, in Texas, the network is called CPAN, a Child Psychiatric Access Network. And so the Texas legislature uh, designated $100 million in funding to be able to provide primary care providers access Monday through Friday during office hours to a pediatric psychiatric provider so that if I have somebody in the office and they can't get in or I'm not sure what to do with them, they can walk me through that and I can have a consult on the phone. Now, I think there's 46 states that have a program somewhat like this in four states that still don't have any program. But we're also seeing as an educator, I'm seeing us really have to step up and prepare our students to handle some of these things that are more common, like anxiety and depression. And then you've got real innovators in the space, like Dr. Bernadette Melnick at the University of Ohio, at the Ohio State University, um, who is who developed a program called Cope to Thrive. And that is something that she's training providers to do online to deliver cognitive behavioral therapy and learn how to bill appropriately for it because that's another reality of practice. Mental health takes time and we're altruistic and we want to help, but we also want to feed our families. So all of these things are a very complex interplay, all leading to barriers to care for mental health for kids. You, you brought up a great point, and I think that's, that's something that might be the most difficult thing to accept is that it's an ongoing um, issue that you know you're over the course of a week or a month it's not it's not you don't go see your provider or have one conversation it's over the over a long time period that uh, you're going to have to address that and so the fact that there are some programs and things that are starting to come to the forefront in different states and it's great to know that at some colleges and universities that nurse practitioner and, and all healthcare students for that matter are starting to see that. Uh, that's very encouraging for sure. <laughs> Although I'm, I would argue it's not enough. There's like so little time, right? In graduate education. I wrote down Dr. Melnick's information. I mean, she's been a mainstay of education for a long time, but I had no idea that she was doing the Cope to Thrive. Josh, and yes, that's a great point. This is chronic, right? So if we have a lot of peds patients with significant chronic illness, where do we send them? To the specialist, right? If they have type 1 diabetes, they see the endocrinologist. If they have a congenital heart anomaly, they see the cardiologist, or if they have hypertension there. So it it's interesting that we're now managing so much. This is specialized long-term care, right? It's, it's check-ins and time, not just with the therapy aspect. That's right. And what we see is the Pediatric Nursing Certification Board also trying to open pathways for specialization as okay. a pediatric mental health specialist. So there are some different pathways for family nurse practitioners and pediatric nurse practitioners to sit for that certification exam. Um, that doesn't require going back to school necessarily, although that is Pathway and it's different from the psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner who practices across the lifespan. This is specific to pediatrics. And so it really gives you a lot of tools in a short amount of time to be able to increase the complexity. Because you bring up a good point, Terry. You know, we can train pediatric and family primary care providers to take care of some simple things. But when you get to complexity, you send them to a specialist. So one of the things that I see PNCB doing is trying to create more specialists in pediatrics. So that may be something that you want to look into. And it's a great career option as well, because you can market yourself as, hey, I can really step 
depth into this practice and provide a very valuable service because I've had this education training and certification. Okay. And PNCB is doing that. If people are interested, they can go there. We offer certification. Yep, that's right. So you can just go to PNCB, that's Pediatric Nurse Certification, Nursing Certification Board.org, and you can learn all about that specialty certification. Awesome. I just wrote that down. Okay. Look at that. We're fine. Resources are available. <laughs> I know. That's the nurse in me, right? Like, I can't send you away without some practical resources. That's what we're here for. Excellent. Yeah. Um, gosh, we could talk about mental health the whole time. I have one more question on this, Josh, and then we can move on to <laughs> no whatever problem. else. It sounds to me like anxiety may be the biggest first symptom that we're seeing in peds populations for whatever reason that could lead. I'm finding across the lifespan that anxiety can be first and then it leads to other things because they're anxious all the time and then they're depressed because they're anxious all the time and then they're not sleeping because they're depressed and anxious all the time and then all of a sudden we're having mood swings and then I'm looking at sometimes it seems like a cascading event so talk a little bit about what you're seeing in anxiety and maybe how it presents across the lifespan because it's way different for a four-year-old than it is for a 14-year-old. That's such a great point, Terry, and I think that's why a lot of parents sometimes don't recognize it because in older teenagers and adults, you can articulate anxiousness. You know, you may not know why you're feeling anxious, but you know what that feels like, and you, you can say, I'm feeling anxious. A four-year-old does not have that vocabulary or that cognition, so a lot of times for younger kids, it presents as behavioral problems, and then parents really start to start to question themselves. They start to have a crisis of confidence. They're thinking, I'm obviously not doing this parenting thing incorrectly. And the other thing we see is regression of developmental milestones. So if they were talking, maybe they're not talking as much anymore. They were potty trained and now all of a sudden they're having issues of incontinence or accidents. And parents just view this from a very singular developmental behavior lens. And it's not, it's mental health. And so many times when I work with older teenagers who have anxiety, we can go back and pinpoint when it started. We can see those behavioral manifestations coming, but just not recognizing it. And there's no fault in that. There's no guilt trip that any parent or provider should have. Sometimes it's difficult to see, especially when we don't have that lens that's also considering this could be anxiety. And people ask, you know, why? And we really don't know. But I think that in an age of today where we're living at the speed of a smartphone, where kids can have their world turned upside down by a viral event, where all of the world's bad news is coming to us in a single second, whereas before, you know, it seemed further away. There was a greater sense of safety. Now it just feels like there's fear at every turn. I think it's no wonder we're living in an anxious state. And I would be remiss if we didn't close out this conversation and also uh, this portion of the conversation and also addressing the mental health of pediatric providers. As providers, we are not immune to anxiety and depression and burnout. And we found in our study with NAPNAP that more than a third of PNPs were saying they want to leave the profession and more than 90% were saying they were concerned for their own mental health. So we've got to have also less stigma and more pathways to get mental health care for us as providers, because I think there's even a special burden with that, you know, thinking, can I do my job? How can I counsel other people with mental health when I'm struggling with my own? And those are just realities that we're facing that I'm 
and confident that we will face it together. I'm taking notes rapidly, of course. Josh knows this. I keep a notebook beside. Uh, that was on our list, Josh, yeah. right? To ask, how are pediatric nurse practitioners? Because most healthcare providers aren't doing very well. Um, what is NAPNAP doing? What are, what, I mean, what's out there, right? So I know you're a past president of NAPNAP. It's a fantastic organization doing so much specifically providing for pediatric NPs, but what are we going to do if all of the healthcare providers are also in mental health crisis or they leave? That's right. Well, when I, I was elected as president of NAPNAP in June of 2019, so completely blindsided. <laughs> I had no idea any of this was coming. Did not know I would be the organization's only, I hope, in the history of ever all virtual president. But when I, I was president during COVID, I assumed the presidency in 2020, and I recognized that I really needed to connect with our members and find out what they were facing. So the uh, secretary of NAPNAP at the time, Jen Sani, who's now actually the past president, we worked together to survey the organization in 2021, March of 2021, a year into the pandemic. And the results were just dismal. I, I'm going to be very transparent and say that Jen and I, we had to absorb the data in very small increments and being cognizant of our own mental health because we had more than 200 pages of just desperation, of just despair wow. and loneliness and fear that were just open-ended comments, 200 pages of open-ended comments. And that was really hard. And so what we got from that study is that there's a pediatric mental health crisis, but there's also a workforce crisis and it is severe. We went back a year later in the Mar in March of 2022 to see, okay, how have things changed in a year? Has it gotten any better? And it had gotten about 10 times worse, honestly. The only bright spots, yes, it was it was really shocking just to see the number of people who were moderately or severely concerned about their mental health, more than half. And uh, when we when we started looking at that, we realized we, we have a crisis and the only bright spots were, hey, we're using telehealth a little bit more and we have high vaccination rates among PNPs. Like that was pretty much it. And so what are we doing? Well, NAPNAP responded immediately. We started a podcast, uh, which was you know novel then, honestly, kind of funny to think about. But in 2020, there were not many NP podcasts and we were even before AANPs. So I started it on my laptop and my computer and you know reaching, and now we have more than 70,000 listeners in 60 countries, which is amazing. But that was a way to connect and give NPs real information in real time because COVID was accelerating faster than any textbook could keep up with. We had town halls, we had experts that came virtually, and really we started using our advocacy voice. And if you read the last paper that we wrote in the journal Pediatric Healthcare Reporting on the, the study findings, what we issued was a clarion call for nursing voice across the health system. And we got a little spicy, I'm not gonna lie, because we're angry and we're frustrated it is true and i think that's one of the biggest contributors to nursing burnout is that they're dealing with the fallout while also not having a voice in any of the solutions now we saw this before covid with president trump appointing a dentist to the head of the national institute for nursing research and in president biden appointing his COVID task force with many physicians more than 10 and not a single nurse so we said we really need nursing voice we're the largest healthcare force in in the in the world 
and in the United States. And we really need to have a voice in some of these solutions because we're on the ground. We're seeing what's going on in the trenches and we know what works and we know what doesn't work. But persistently nursing is excluded. You may have heard of the Woodhull study, which was done out of George Washington University and saw, you know, how what percentage of health stories quote nurses as sources. And the original study said 4%. 20 years later, just a few years ago, they revisited that and found it decreased to 2%. So while nursing is, has was the face of the pandemic response, we were not the voice of the pandemic response. And there's a real disconnect there that needs to be addressed. Oh, you're speaking my language. Okay, so it is the paper you wrote, the, um, the paper that's published, is it public access? Can anyone go and read? Okay, where would they go get that? The Journal of Pediatric Healthcare. So just go to your internet search engine and put in Journal of Pediatric Healthcare. You can just type in my name, Peck, in the search engine, and that will come up. There are two, uh, one, the first study and the second study that were published, and they're both open access, so you can read the whole article for yourself. Beautiful. Great. And we'll we'll um, we'll search that for folks, and we'll when we launch the podcast and put it out across. Uh, our different social media channels and communications, we will put the link in there for folks so that you can have easy access to that. And so there's, I don't know, I'm, I'm sitting here and there's like 50 different questions that are going through my brain. And it, it, it and it's, well, I think it's, you know, it, it, COVID was such a unique thing that happened. And I think, exacerbated so many of of the things that are going on um and and healthcare is probably the 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 place where as much as anything changed um from so many different perspectives you you talk about the response to covid and that that's a whole nother conversation um but in terms of how it affected providers and and their own mental health and the burnout and the in the ability to deal with the day in and day out issues of their patients. But then, um, you know, I, my thought was, you know, it was a, a difficult situation for everybody during COVID, but people who were providers had it the toughest. And I thought that parents that had children, especially who were in high school at their, you know, junior, senior level years where you're where that time, you know, exactly. And I admit perhaps both of you had children. And then I thought about my family members who were either having children during that time or had infants and toddlers during that time and the development uh, that goes on at that stage of life. And so I, I, I don't think we can understate how much of an impact that COVID had. And, and now, you know, three, four years later after the origins of it, you know, we're, the, those issues are gonna are gonna last for for longer than perhaps people may have thought, and, and you know some things continue to come to the surface now. Yeah, you bring a good point. It just changed a lot of things. And so Jessica, you had a high schooler during COVID. I did also, and even my college age children bounced home and lived with me again. That was super fun. But. <laughs> Um, Josh, I think that highlights how it, it did change healthcare. Here's my concern too, and all of that. It changed healthcare education. So while we talk about the development of kids and how they were schooled and how nurse practitioner education was forever changed, 
and, and there's something that hasn't quite clicked with those new NPs or it's not going to change back. And so I'm seeing in the family practice, because that's what we prim do is primary care, um, that there's an extra gap that we're not filling as a profession for these brand new NPs or the students who are in school because we taught the same way as before and they still have needs. So is that true in the pediatric realm, Jessica, with the new PNPs that are coming out? And how can someone like NPACE help those people? I mean, they're everybody's in practice. They're here. We passed our cert exam. We need to support them. How do we get there as a profession? Oh, so many things to unpack here. So first I'll go back to what Josh was saying, just about some of the care delivery norms being affected. And one other thing that I think that we have to talk about is the, the disruption of visitor policies, especially for pediatrics. So we had all these kids in the hospital who were by themselves, and we had, we had people who were delivering babies who their baby book is going to be traumatic because they recognize that their partner couldn't be there for the delivery. And in the shadow of all of this, Terry, here we are educating, you know, we're educating NPs to go out into the workforce. So I actually, I went to, I moved to Baylor in the fall of 2019, all of these big moves right before things happened, because we were starting the first DNP program for PNPs in the whole state of Texas. So this whole time, the last four years, and we just had had our first cohort graduate in December of this last year. So they have been really a perfect kind of case study of being educated in the shadow of the pandemic and having to, to pivot really rapidly. And, you know, I think I also want to give a special shout out to the educators who are shepherding these experiences. Because what I discovered as an educator was that I had immense vicarious trauma. When I was in practice, we would see one particular practice. Like I'm practicing in primary care, I know that I'm, I found myself at the beginning of the pandemic borrowing an N95 mask from my uh, coworker whose husband had found it in the garage after he had painted, but it was all we had. So that was like better than nothing. And I'm, you know, swabbing people in the alley behind my practice. Like that's one experience. But when I have pediatric nurse practitioner students, and we've got hundreds of them who are, are all over the country and some all over the world. And they're sharing their traumatic experience and their traumatic experience and all of these microcosms of trauma that I'm now becoming the curator of. Oh, I was not prepared for that. I was just not prepared for that. And I think that's something that we really have not even talked about as a profession. I don't see any literature, but I'll tell you when my colleagues and I go out for coffee or we're sitting around the break room or having Zoom, we know this. So Terry, to your point, I think we are going to have to pivot because we see these people who are coming into the profession saying, this is not what I signed up for. Like, this is too hard. It's too much sacrifice. Like I am miserable. It's not what I thought it would be. And we have to prepare them for the realities of that while still at some point finding optimism and hope in our calling as a profession. And that's a tall order and we're, we're not there yet. There's a lot of work to do. Oh, well, so much, so much to unpack. Um, I appreciate that NAPNAP is surveying and really interested in how the membership is doing in their mental health and taking interaction in that. It's powerful. Will you continue to do that? Are you continuing those surveys year to year 
at the national conference or is it membership wide or? We're giving a little space to be honest because just doing it twice, it was like, oh my goodness. Okay, so we we need a little more time for interventions. Now, one of the things that NAPNAP has done in this uh, promoting people to go toward this pediatric mental health certification, uh, specialty certification, they've given education to be able to have that pathway all for free for NAPNAP members. So okay. that's one thing that they've been doing, but also just uh, we issued two position statements, one on resilience of the workforce, and there are a lot of specific recommendations that they're working on you know, through, uh, through their policy arm, which is really important for what you asked me earlier, Terry, what NPACE could do to help. And I think it's so important for organizations like NPACE and NAPNAP to provide community and support. So I know just from the last conference I was in with you guys in Phoenix, you walk into that place and there is a palpable energy. There's smiling, there is just a lightness, there is this, there's a few feeling that this is my people, like you understand my world and we can talk shop and nobody's going to say, oh my gosh, don't talk about that over lunch. Like there's none of that, right? So <laughs> no. I, think just, I would encourage people who are listening to go to an in-person conference, to go and to really seek that camaraderie and to seek education, to feel like you're not alone in what you're facing. And instead of struggling with it on your own, feeling more equipped to be, oh, I can deal with that. I can modify my practice this way. I can adapt in real time. I think those are really important things for people to engage in. Now, conversely, we need employers to pay for NPs to do that. Yes, we do. But it's not a standard for NPs, and we need that to have that, that same kind of professional acculturation, acclimation, and education, and frankly, time away. I see so many NPs at conferences who think like, oh, we had to hire a Welcome tenants, and I'm still on the phone trying to manage that. Just stop it. That's an accountability that employers have to take. I I'm saying it right here. I said what I said. I'm not taking it back. <laughs> no, Preach. I I completely agree. And I, there's a few there's a few takeaways. A that you're not in it alone. Um, and I think that that's that that's something to recognize is that there are definitely other providers who who are having similar feelings. Um, and when, you know, any sort of conference, whether it's NPACE, whether it's NAPNAP or any other sort of opportunity to get together with colleagues and peers, um, those are those are times to be able to have conversations like the one that we're having today and be able to to honestly and openly have a dialogue about what the realities are of what's going on. And I think we like to say when you come to an NPACE conference, you, you're going to earn your CE, you're going to see fantastic speakers and learn from our exhibitors and sponsors. But um rest relaxation and rejuvenation and wellness are huge components of what we want our conferences to be to to you know as you said in as you said at the phoenix event we want people to be able to immerse themselves into the location that we're at um and, and be able to be with their peers and get out into nature get out on the tours and and get away from it for a little bit i think you know, and that goes back to our mental health conversation for providers as well. Hopefully, if you're there for two, three, four days, whatever it is, those are a few days where you go back to practice feeling a little bit better equipped to deal with things from a clinical perspective, but you're feeling better yourself and in, in being able to uh, deal with some of the, the challenges that will be presented to you. So 
I think we can all advocate to get out there and 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 if you haven't been to an in-person event to just trial one and get 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 to one whether it's your state organization and pace nap nap specialty conferences there I don't know there's so many different choices that you have <laughs> there is and I would just build on what Josh said because Jessica you gave us such a beautiful segue to this that um, I've been an NP a long time and a nurse a long time. One of the most beneficial memberships I ever had was a NAPNAP membership. So I really want to encourage any family practice providers out there who are seeing peds or in a peds practice to really keep up with that. Um, I know that you have your own podcast. So if people want to find out more, where can they find you, Jessica? I do. They can find me. My, po- my podcast actually is transitioning to a daily radio show that's been converted into podcast format. So I actually, I do, I host a faith-based show called the Dr. Nurse Mama Show. It's my professor brain, my my hands-on nursing experience, and my heart as a mom to be a guide on the side for parents. And so we talk about all kinds of issues related to child and family health, and that has been a roller coaster ride for sure. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) <laughs> like minds uh, sorry josh go yeah, ahead <laughs> no that's that's the way it usually goes and jesse um you're also very uh prominent on social media as well where can, what what platforms and where can people find you uh on social media because you're you're constantly posting amazing tips and tricks for folks I try really hard. I have to remind myself, you know, I have a day job. Like I have to, <laughs> I, I do teach. So um, all of those things are there, but I have a team that helps me with that. So you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. My parent facing channels are Dr. Nurse Mama. You can find me at both of those. And then I have on Twitter and Facebook, I have a professional facing page that's at Dr. Peck PNP. And you can find me there. Amazing. And we'll link, as we said, with the uh, Journal for uh, Pediatric Nurse nurse Practitioners, we'll also link to your social channels. I think we had a few other questions and I I don't I want to I do want to address one because it's personal. It's personal to me a little bit. And so and this is a big one. So how can folks and I'm early 30s for for everybody's full disclosure. who are thinking about having children, how can they best prepare? I mean, I'm, I'm, it's, it's something that I think about on a day in and day out basis and with my partner and, and, you know, the discussion has been had, but what are some things that, and resources that may be available that, that folks don't know about that they can do to help themselves out as they prepare for that next step in their lives? I love this question, Josh. As a mom of four myself, my kids are now 20, 18, 16, and 14. I take my love of pediatrics very professionally and personally. I take it seriously. And I think I hear this conversation among young people a lot. Like, how can we bring a child into the world that has gone mad? You know, what is this like? And I would say that kids are the greatest gift and the greatest source of hope that we can find, as especially as pediatric providers in the world. It's what gets me out of bed and going every single day because I think kids are just amazing. You know, when I'm taking care of adults, I don't like taking care of adults. Sorry. Thank you so much to those of you who do, because I I am an adult and in fact do need care, but they're cranky. They want you to fix them faster. You know, they don't want you to fix them faster. They're happy in their state of, you know, illness, but kids are just honest. They just are who they are. So Josh, my biggest advice for getting ready for, for parenting 
is to work on any trauma that you might have experienced in your past and just work on being the best person that you can be. And then know that you're going to mess up. You're going to get it wrong. You are going to make mistakes. But kids are amazingly resilient. And the number one predictor of resilience is kids. For kids, is having meaningful connection to one adult who loves them, just that bond to one caregiver. And so we think like, oh, we have to know all the parenting hacks and the life hacks, and we've got to, you know, pack lunch in bento boxes, and we have to, you know, play classical music in the womb, like to, you know, we have to do all these things. That's not true. All kids want us to do is to be there with them. They want our time and they want our love. That's it. And those are, I think, sometimes some things that parents struggle with the most. They think, no, they need the newest pair of Nikes or they need select sports. No, they just need your time and they just need you to love them. They don't need fancy things. Kids are amazingly satisfied with just such simple things. So that that's the hope that I would give you, uh, Josh, honestly, just kind of you know, take an inventory of yourself and think, how do I want to be a parent? How do I want to be different? How do I want to be the same as the way that I was raised? And then you can do it. You can totally do it. Oh, that That's, was so sweet. I know. I I, <laughs> I, I appreciate it. it immensely. And I, I think that it's been part of what, you know, we've discussed and thought about is, you know, you, you want to take the things from when you were growing up and implement the good and stay away from the, the, the bad. But uh, that internal self audit, if you will, in terms of how to, you know, really uh, being honest and truthful with yourself about how you want to go about that aspect of things. And, um, you know, I think it's that's the best thing to be able to do and understand. So thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. That was such a sweet answer for those of us that have kids. Even I was like, oh, maybe I didn't break mine after all. Sorry, Jessica. No, if you if you are happy and healthy, your kids will be too. I mean, that's just that's just the way that it goes. It's so true. Now I want to go call my kids and give them a hug. They're at college, so I'm gonna be annoying them. But what are you doing? <laughs> yep. Good. I miss you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, Josh, that was such a great question, and I think such a great point to wrap this up on with some hope and not all doom and gloom and. Uh, Kids are the best, right? Um, they are the best. That's good. Josh, you want to tell everyone where they can find us? And they yes. and we're going to put Jess's information up too, but we'll. Absolutely. So, so for all of our listeners, I think you, you've known where you can find us. But for those who may be new, uh, you can find the Friends of MPACE podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, and the NPACE Learning Center. Uh, our previous episodes can be found on all of those platforms. A uh, quick mention that episodes two and five have some CE credit if you listen to those episodes and you can learn more about how you earn your credit for listening to those episodes when you tune into those. And so we hope that everybody can check this episode out. We will link to the links in the podcast description and across our social media channels when we promote this. And Jessica, we really can't thank you enough for taking time to be with us today. And um, we know that you will be with us at future NPACE conferences as well. So we will we have a lot of information to be able to tell folks about where they can find you and interact. Um, as Jessica said, she has 
fantastic daily radio show and her social media channels as well that you can find. So Terry, thank you so much as well. It's always great to do the podcast. It's I think one of our favorite things that we get to do here at NPACE. And so thank you to all our listeners. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Terry. That will do it for this episode of the Friends of NPACE podcast. We hope everybody has a fantastic rest of their day and week ahead.